Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you. And a little preview of what's coming up later on for our inbox. We have a listener who has a strained relationship with one of her female friends and is wondering if now is a good time to reach out. A long story with lots of layers. So we are going to have our counselor, Jenny Coffey, weigh in on this question that she has. And then for our culture segment, we have author Grace McGrady here to share part of her story of overcoming an eating disorder. So if you or someone you know is facing that as a current struggle, this is going to give you some hope. Well, it is time now for our roundtable, and today we are returning to a conversation that we started last week. We have Roger and Diane Ingolia. They have been married for 45 years and have been doing a lot of premarital counseling with couples during that time. And then also we're joined by Gabriel and Hannah Nymeyer. They've been married a little less than a year. And so we're coming into a part now where we began discussing physical boundaries, which is also towards the end of last week's show. And so let's pick up that conversation, a little bit of a refresher, and then we will go from there. I want to start out by saying, you know, Hannah and Gabriel, maybe you can speak to this. Do you think, did you guys and do a lot of your peers when you start dating, have this conversation about boundaries and does that help set you up for moving into engagement and did anything change there or did you have to like redraw some lines, have additional conversations, be like, (laughs) okay, this is the reality of where this is. I mean, obviously Gabriel alluded to the fact that you were long distance, Uh, that helps some, let's be honest, but not all the time. So what did that look like? Yeah, we definitely had to redraw some boundary lines when we got engaged because yeah, you get into this mindset of like, we're going to be married in a few months and, and you love this person and you want to spend the rest of your life with them. So obviously uh, it's easier to push the physical boundary lines than as compared when you're just dating. So yeah, we definitely had to have those conversations and yeah, and long distance. What, give us a practical example of what did it look like to redraw some lines or reaffirm yeah. a few things. Yeah. Yeah. We had had conversations in the past. Maybe you can help with this, Gabriel, but Like for us specifically, hanging out in a car too long after we had gone out to dinner or gone out on a date wasn't necessarily, yeah. Yeah, the excuses just get easier to make. Yeah. Right? That's a good way to put it. And you have to go back to, we're not just dating to get to know each other. We're dating and now engaged to get married, and we want a good foundation for where we're going. Mm -hmm. Right? And so this example, right? It's easy to hang out in a car. It's easy to, you know, instead of... Hannah lived with three or four other gals in a house. And instead of going up and hanging out, you know, in her room with the door open even, right? Hey, let's be intentional about hanging out with other people. Mm-hmm. When we, you know, when I come down to Texas, let's find your friends. I'll hang out with them. We'll get away a little bit, you know, we'll get grab coffee and stuff. But the more time that you can spend in a group setting and get to know that person there, right? How much richer does that make the the relationship and the friendships Mm -hmm. because so many of Hannah's friends are now good friends of mine Mm. because we were like, we want to be the the fun couple, right? Mm -hmm. We want to be the couple that people don't feel weird around. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. so all around this idea of what kind of foundation am I building when Mm -hmm. I say my vows and and walk into marriage? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, I mean, clarify for us, because a lot of people will say, okay, but in engagement, it really ramps up. Because for example, now we're doing premarital, we're talking about very intimate things. 
it's hard. Like, what are we just supposed to like show up after the wedding day and be like, anyway, four months ago when we talked about this, you know, it's it's hard. People will say like, it's hard for me to even think about that. You know, it's kind of like a moving train or mm-hmm. whatever. So what does that look like? I mean, you would naturally spend more alone time, probably even weird stuff like doing wedding prep or whatever, you know, having to make a lot of decisions. So was it hard to kind of say, okay, I mean, we are we are alone or we have to budget this time alone or whatever and even go in there in some aspects? Yeah, that was, I mean, it's definitely difficult. I'm not going to be um, the person to say that it's easy at all. And I think something that we said a lot, which is kind of funny, we said it to each other when we really felt like maybe we were pushing physical boundaries. We would encourage each other and say, engaged ain't married. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it was kind of a funny thing, and our, our family ended up making fun of us for it. Like, are you guys getting married? And we're like, yes, we're just trying to really draw that line of engaged ain't married. Mm-hmm. It, you know, intimacy must always and only follow commitment. And mm-hmm. yeah, and we obviously did spend a lot more time alone because we were, you know, yeah, wedding prep and preparing for life, looking for apartments and things like that. Yeah. Um, so it definitely wasn't easy, but... Well, and it's interesting, and as, you know, a couple that counsels so many other couples, Diane and Roger, um, I'd love to get your insight on this, because I think a lot of people make arguments for super long engagements, because they feel like there are so many details that have to be hit up, or maybe they're saving some more money, or maybe someone has to move, or, and then it's kind of like life gets away from them, Mm -hmm. and it's a year, and then it's a year and a half, and then it's two years, and then it's like two and a half years. Is there a way that couples can kind of objectively say, oh, we don't want to hit engagement for such a long period of time because it's hard. What's your encouragement to them as far as timeline and also turning that corner into engagement just for keeping physical boundaries Mm -hmm. in place? What do you Mm -hmm. tell them? I think it depends on the couple and the like the geographics of where the two of you were and their spirituality mm-hmm. where are they in their walk with the lord mm-hmm. do they have the self control and the love for that other person to wait mm-hmm. um or are they bullying their way in and then you're like then you just need to make this a short engagement mm-hmm. um but some people we went we had a 9 month engagement which is was perfect for us with these Italian families that we have. Um, (laughs) But we also wanted to make sure that we had a good amount of pre-marriage counseling. So we did have a good 40 hours or so, Mm -hmm. um, the, the same kind of idea of what we're giving to others right now. And Roger would meet with Jack separately just to talk about my family. And I didn't even know that this was going on Mm -hmm. because Jack saw my mom and saw the struggles that we would have. Mm -hmm. But I also, it built trust in Roger as the man to take the leadership of Christ. Mm -hmm. That if he could take this leadership and have the self-control, love me enough to not engage in any kind of boundary dropping. We had a thing, nothing below the neck. and um, But I think it also builds respect in each other to know that it's a covenant that you're entering into. And I want to know that I can trust him as the leader to take a firm stand. You know, and what was paramount to us was the idea that we communicated. I mean, you have to, and you know this, Lisa. We, I dated her for five years. She dated me for two. But in, <laughs> in that time frame, a lot of discussion. Mm-hmm. 
we really didn't hold back on the discussions that we needed to have because we knew it was going to be important to our relationship, to our engagement, to our marriage, etc. So um, we use a phrase that a lack of communication leads to a lack of respect, which leads to, to a lack of commitment. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not discussing these things, then your respect for that person and the, and the ease or the ability to go beyond what the limit should be when it comes to whether it's physical or setting up any kind of boundaries, mm -hmm. it really can detract from the level of commitment you're going to have to that relationship. Do I respect her enough and do I love the Lord enough to follow the principle that simply says, I need to keep her holy. Just like God presents the body of Christ holy, we need to recognize that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. So doing the things we were supposed to do, maintaining the boundaries we're supposed to maintain, and recognizing we have our whole married life to engage mm -hmm. uh, in the levels of intimacy that God has designed for the marriage context. It's like, why blow it for, uh, you know, a moment of pleasure mm -hmm. when in reality you can enter into this thing, honoring the Lord, honoring each other. Mm -hmm. And to your comment earlier, we bought our house a month before we were married. Uh, we didn't get to move into it until a month after we were married oh, because it was being, right. we had to evict the people that that were oh. in there. So, no, oh, we didn't get tricky. to live together or anything mm -hmm. like that. And no, we okay. chose not to live That's together. Right. Well, we didn't get That's to, from true. my point of view, yeah. it was yeah. your choice. <laughs> okay, no, actually, it was both our choice. That's yeah. good to know. Okay, so that let's go ahead and ask, because this is another point that I hear raised a lot by engaged couples with whether it's just straight up living together or having sex. Um, and it's the awkward question, but we're always awkward here at Boundless mm -hmm. of, okay, but seriously, you guys, you've got to try before you buy. Like, this is ridiculous to think that you're going to get married yeah. and you don't know if you are sexually compatible with this person. And, you know, now you have to waste, quote, air quotes, all this time, like, you know, having sex <laughs> with your now spouse when you could have gotten into a better groove, you know, or jam uh, beforehand. What would y'all say to that? Marriage is not about the sex. It's about the relationship. Hmm. And I, we actually had a friend that, that says, you know, you have to ride the pony before you buy it. And it's not about the physical intimacy. It's about the spiritual and the personal and the emotional connection to somebody. What if you are paralyzed, you know, from the waist down? Is Well, you're not going to ride that pony anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so is that what the relationship is about? Or is it about the fact that I love this person and I want to spend the rest of my life with them? That is the dumbest thing that people can save. And what a great way to rationalize their own selfish desires. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, or, they, and, or they enter into this aspect of, well, we're going to get married anyway. Yeah. You know, so why right. not go ahead and engage uh, in this this aspect of what really is designed for, for marriage? Mm -hmm. But I think Diane's hit the key, at least from my perspective. If your relationship is built on a physical um, intimacy, then one accident, one disease, I mean, it could change all of that. Then what? Mm -hmm. But when you really base it on a, a relationship between two people who really want to serve Christ, then actually it enhances the whole pleasure and the enjoyment of of uh, the the intimate sexual relationship mm -hmm. between a husband and a wife. Yeah. But it's got to start with the relationship first. Yeah. Yeah. And I would add some advice I was given during engagement was, you know, who the person is in life is who they are in bed. And that means if they're selfless and they're kind mm -hmm. and they love you, like 
that's how they will be in bed because nothing changes. It's just a different circumstance. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that was something um, that was really encouraging. And I think the thought of sex is all about me, I have to be completely 100% fulfilled is just worldly thinking. Mm -hmm. And I need the 1000% best sexual experience. That's just, it's cultural thinking. And when you look at it in the context of the Bible, it's always selfless, obviously in the context of marriage. And it, um, yeah, it's really an act of love and a catalyst in the relationship, but it's not the basis of the relationship. It's, Mm -hmm. it's an add on. It's not about me. It's about you. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also debunking that idea that, you know, where people will say that sex is a need, I mean, which mm. obviously, I mean, and again, there's so much in marriage that you mm-hmm. could parse out about mutually serving one another and stuff. So I'm not saying that. But the fact that if Jesus didn't have sex and was a complete mm-hmm. person, you know, we need to just Amen. lay that by yeah. the wayside. So yeah. it's not like I need, I cannot go to my grave not having had sex because, hello, it's not a, it's not a life and death. And not need. everyone's called to marriage. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Um Okay, final just question, um, and maybe Roger and Diane, you can lead this one off. Um, what would you say, what's your advice to a couple who, when they come to you, they say, well, you know what, here's the deal. We already blew it. Mm-hmm. And so should we even get married? Does it even matter? Are we damaged goods? What do we do from here? Well, we had a great experience, Roger. Go yeah, ahead. <laughs> one of the, the, actually the first couple that we ever did pre-marriage counseling with uh, was a friend of our mentor's. And he wanted us to not only take all of our training uh, and put it into practical application. And so we had gone through a couple uh, rounds of counseling. And uh, we were talking about the issue of, uh, it was it's actually a lot of questions that we were asking them to get information where they were at so we knew where to take their counseling. And so I asked the question uh, simply was, well, what about sex? What have you guys dis- discussed about sex? And this gentleman looked over at me and he goes, well, we're having it. And I went, okay. And I just kept going. And Diane's eyes kind of got big, Mm -hmm. like, where do we go from here? (laughs) So by the time we ended that evening, the Lord really showed up. And God took me full circle in my questions and said, I've heard you tell me that you want your, your wedding to honor the Lord and your relationship to honor the Lord. And you want this to be communicated to all the people that are going to be there. And yet you've chosen to live from a biblical perspective in sin. And so our recommendation is that has to stop now. And there's no reason why it can't. Mm-hmm. You make a decision to do this. You can make a decision not to. Um, and, in, and, and to their credit, uh, after the next session, what they ended up doing is they broke off their, actually broke off their engagement. Mm-hmm. Invitations had been sent out. Oh, very wow. prominent families. Mm-hmm. But they recognized we need to back this boat up because our relationship was being built on a physical versus just being on that relational thing between a husband, a future husband and a future wife. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, they ended up calling off the wedding for six months, got some counseling, made the right decisions and stopped having sex mm-hmm. and entered into their relationship, in essence, starting all over from scratch, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, here it is, uh, what, almost uh, 35, 40 years later. Wow. And still uh, married with a wonderful family and all that. But they did the hard thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when, you know, your flesh tells you, no, I don't want to give this up because mm-hmm. sin for the moment is pleasurable. Mm-hmm. But in reality, they knew what they needed to do. They did it. And uh, the results was a successful marriage this, up to this time. So Yeah. 
did you guys, um, Gabriel and Hannah, have friends, peers in college or whatever who kind of went, you know, did that or you heard conversations around that of like, oh, yeah, you know, well, it is what it is. This is what happened. And so whatever. I feel like a lot of uh, young adults today are, you know, that's why we've kind of not, um, you know, made marriage such a priority because it's kind of like, well, you know, we messed up here or maybe we're not even considering it messed up or whatever. So it just becomes kind of a meh. I don't know. Any thoughts around that? Yeah. Um, I definitely had friends in college who slept with their boyfriends and almost were in this point of like, they didn't know what to do about it. They Mm -hmm. didn't know how do we move forward. Um, They weren't engaged at the time. They now are. And they really had to have these, um, like Roger talked about, these defining moments of, okay, what's next? Are we going to continue in this and kind of reestablish those respect boundaries of I'm going to love you enough and respect you enough Mm -hmm. to keep you pure in this way. And so definitely counseling followed and yeah. Well, you know, Paul says you, you stole, steal no more. Yeah. You know, you committed adultery, commit adultery no more. And even Jesus said when the woman was caught in adultery, mm-hmm. he's go and mm-hmm. sin no more. And he didn't say you're shamed for life. That's the end of you. Yeah. Or even the woman at the well, you yeah. know, you have five husbands and it's like, go and sin no more yeah. because that's that cleansing part of Christ that right. forgives and let's clean it up and move on. And the challenge yeah. is, is Christ can forgive us. We can make those mistakes, and we know that we know that our Lord will forgive us. The question becomes, will we forgive ourselves, and will mm-hmm. we forgive those that maybe we have violated in that sense? So mm-hmm. I think if we come back to what we know to be true in terms of biblical principles, we can draw the line and say, let's start afresh from here, yeah. uh, because— Hey, once you're married, then all all those holds are gone, and you can enjoy everything that God has purposed and designed uh, within the marriage context. So why not take the stand yeah. and really communicating to your your future husband or your future wife that you are more important to me than I am? And then in that regard, sex moves beyond the, hey, this was great that we were doing this, and it was all about me, and I, I enjoyed it, to now once we're married and then I can have my focus be you instead of myself because you according to scripture needs to be more important than I am yeah well every day for sinners you know I feel like and it's regardless of the sin this isn't just sexual sin Mm -hmm. is reorienting yourself to the cross that's correct (laughs) I mean that's the Mm -hmm. that's the walk of the Christian life it's not like let's obsess about Mm -hmm. what happened two weeks ago or two months Mm -hmm. ago or two years ago it's not, you know, God, uh, there is, there is grace and God's in the business of redemption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that yeah, but every day has to be Jesus. Where are you? Where yeah. are you? Yeah. I, but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences right, that come right, right. with inappropriate action yeah. and, and you have to work through those and Walk accept that, that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that grace piece is essential because it's empowering, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, okay, well, you know, I've sinned sexually in this way. This is what I am. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm damaged goods. This mm-hmm. is how I have to act for the rest of my life but mm-hmm. but no that's not the case Mm-mm. grace yeah. like you said it, we we just reorient ourselves and every day is a new day mm-hmm. and it's about choice and about um, relying on the holy spirit yeah it's so. a good word well thanks y'all for, mm. for thank you. Yeah, yeah, appreciate thank you. it though i walk through darkest valleys there's no fear for Help
Well, folks, for today's culture segment, I am introducing you to a friend of Boundless. And it's not always. A lot of times when we talk to guests, you know, they're going to maybe some of them are unfamiliar with Boundless or maybe, you know, we're not opposed to having some oldsters on the show. So maybe they don't totally know about Boundless. But sometimes we interview someone who actually lives Boundless and and is a fan and listens to the show or reads our articles. And that is today's guest. Um, We have got Grace McGrady on. She is a writer. She's a blogger. She's a speaker. And in particular, we're going to be talking today about her book, Real Recovery, What Eating Disorder Recovery Actually Looks Like. And so, Grace, welcome to The Boundless Show. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's such a pleasure to be on here. Well, this is super fun for us to have you and so, um, and to actually have scheduled it. Like sometimes, you know, it's funny, we'll have Boundless uh, fans visit and they'll be here on vacation in Colorado and we're like, hey, well, while you're here, why don't you just be on the show? So we just gave you a little extra prep. So that's good. You know, feel, you better feel privileged. <laughs> so yes, we, didn't just, I do. <laughs> we didn't just pull you in. Um, okay. Well, this is obviously a very important topic. It's one that we haven't talked about recently on the Boundless show. And I really appreciate that not only are you willing to tell your own story and your own struggle in this area, but uh, you are willing to put that in print and you did. So folks who can can follow up with that uh, certainly will. And so I kind of want to kick it off because again, this is one of those things we need a little bit of your own story here. Um, You know, I don't think anyone wakes up one day, whether they're in high school, college, you know, young adulthood, and I don't think anyone consciously decides, you know, the one thing that I really have missing in my life is an eating disorder. And uh, that's something that, you know, for my own sanctification, I just want to add, or it's something that, you know, I think would be helpful uh, to me in my life. And so let's give us a little background of when you first even noticed, was it a gradual process of how you came to grips with the fact that this actually was a struggle, it was a real thing? And then give us a little peek into a day waking up with an eating disorder, whether that was in the throes of your struggle, or maybe what that looks like now, just walk us through so we can understand what you have grappled with now for however many years. I think that's so accurate. No one like purposely chooses, you know, I'm going to have an eating disorder. And uh, like you said, that I mean, that certainly wasn't the case with me. I don't think it's really the case with anyone. It was a struggle that I didn't really see coming. I didn't see it affecting my life and the lives of people close to me so much. It started really when I was about 12, but It was kind of a short, you could say like a short bout with anorexia when I was 12. Um, It only lasted a few months. And kind of the cure for it was Christian counseling. And then I seemed to be doing pretty well. I wouldn't say I loved my body, but I was, you know, satisfied enough to live a healthy life in spite of how I felt. And then it started to resurface um, when I was about 15, almost 16, Again, nothing really triggered it. There was no no clear trauma or, you know, any bullying, anything like that. Some people do do start to struggle with an eating disorder because of trauma or bullying or, you know, just a difficult life circumstance. But that wasn't really the case for me. I didn't really have a clear a clear starting point even. The the whole thing was really kind of 
blurry and fuzzy, definitely subtle and gradual. It wasn't as severe as I know other people's eating disorders have been, but it was still very, very real, very difficult, uh, very dangerous for my health. And I struggled for about about two years from the time I was about to turn 16 till almost my 18th birthday. And really a day in the life of having anorexia was just quite miserable. I was hiding everything I was doing from my family. And I, I uh, have a very tight-knit family. I was homeschooled. And so it was, you know, I was really close to my family, but I was doing my very, very best to keep my eating disorder a secret. So a typical day involved a lot of lying and deception and kind of trying to to hide what I was doing. And so, again, I wasn't maybe what stereotypical anorexic looked like with just, you know, eating one apple a day and, you know, exercising six hours or something crazy. It wasn't that severe, um, thankfully, but still trying to lose weight and eat as little as I could, exercise as much as I had time for. Um, and that at the time I was in high school, um, I was being homeschooled and just whenever I could exercise and whenever I could get away with eating small meals or avoiding snacks, things like that, um, that's how I lost weight. It was very gradual. And then a day kind of in recovery after kind of, I turned 18 and started the process of recovering. I mean, it, again, it was honestly pretty miserable um, because I, I was starting recovery, like kicking and screaming, and that's the last thing I wanted. For a long time, I was really miserable, didn't want anything to do with recovery, was simply recovering because, I mean, there was no light bulb moment or anything even that triggered my, my recovery, but I had just come to the point where God enabled my recovery. <laughs> there is really no other way to explain it. I was so against it. So, like I said, I was pretty miserable for a while. I was physically recovered after about six months um, or so of just kind of a, a hardcore meal plan that I had, and I wasn't allowed to exercise for a while. And so that continued for about six months. But then I was still pretty miserable, even when I had reached the point of physically, quote unquote, physically recovered because I was physically healthy, but my mind was still a mess and I was emotionally a mess and spiritually a mess um, because I still had these awful lies that I was believing about myself. And um, so that kind of lasted for, I don't even know how many more years after I was, you know, deemed like physically recovered. And it's really just recently that I've started noticing the, like being able to look back on even a, a couple of years ago, a few years ago and seeing how I've recovered and how God's brought me to this point, because I'm not nearly as miserable as I was even, you know, a couple of years ago. So nothing, nothing again, really triggered that. My, my anorexia was very gradual. My recovery was very gradual, subtle. Um, so it's just, the last, I don't know, year, several months that I've noticed how far God's brought me. 
in my emotional and mental and spiritual recovery, especially. Yeah. And hearing you talk about that, I can imagine that it must have been at all stages and phases of this, just even the even waking up on any given day and facing the day ahead of you, it must have just been exhausting because it's a, you know, it seems to be a pattern, like you said, of, uh, of really trying to take control in a lot of areas and figuring out what that control looks like. And then as you alluded to kind of hiding and needing to lie in order to uh, have the control in areas where other people are going to disagree with you and say, no, that's not healthy. This is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. This is what's medically appropriate. And I love how you even said now at the end of your response, and thanks for kind of painting that overall picture for us. You you said that it's not, it's still a process. This isn't a one and done thing of like, you know what, here's the day that I got healed. And now I don't even think about food. Uh, you actually say in your book, and of course, this was you know, it's it's a new book, but you wrote it, you know, like you said, you've even come probably some little distance since writing the book. But you actually say in the pages of the book, I thought this was so telling, uh, quote here, the real me still feels anxious about stepping on the scale, still has fears about the nutrition labels she sees or can't see, and still is adamant about exercising daily. She still wants to hide the waste that she can't change, still wishes Satan would leave her alone, still wants the body that her friend has and still wonders why a guy has never told her that she's beautiful. And I just think that's such a a poignant statement of, you know, dependence of, you know, this isn't something that we just get confidently under our belts and say, oh, good. You know, and of course, any kind of struggle that we have, whether it's a stronghold of sin in one area or another, um, just a a point of weakness in our own lives, a a point of, as you say, Satan, uh, believing Satan's lies. I think it's great for us to recognize that it's not something that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just say, oh, good, now I'm far enough past it that I no longer have to struggle or have to worry about it. Um, it's something that Satan can sneakily come back uh, and, and use against us even in the future. And so I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit to that point, Grace, about the the role of Satan really in perpetuating a lot of the lies that are, are so easy for any of us to believe when we start uh, looking towards whether it's our, our self or the people around us, the comparison game, looking at what Satan is telling us. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, what what that looked like to believe lies and where was the process? Where did you even get the strength to say, am I going to be able to turn from this and and rest in grace instead? Yeah, <laughs> I I really like that that quote you read because and I I um could have mentioned this sooner but it is a continual process recovery is continual process um and that has a lot to do with fighting Satan's lies because you said it and that's a big part of my book is the whole control thing especially for women um, I think that also for for men is really hard, and we really like to control things um, as best we think we can because ultimately God is in control. But when something feels out of control in our lives, we we try to gain that control somewhere. And for me, it was with my with my body, how I looked, and so Satan really used that desire for control in my life and that desire for something that, you know, I could be in charge of to 
just lead me down this destructive path of starving myself and exercising too hard and being so hard on my body. And so I feel like the the lies he told me, especially at first, were really, really subtle because the whole process was subtle of me, you know, struggling with anorexia and recovering. His his lies were very subtle and quite honestly, for the bulk of my eating disorder and into my recovery, I just I couldn't see straight because I was so focused on his lies. And I really genuinely saw them as the truth. Um, there wasn't like a hesitancy to believe them. I just believed them. I just, you know, if he said I was fat, well, then, you know, he's right. If he said I needed to lose weight, then, well, of course I need to. Um, I didn't question it. Um, I didn't question his voice. I just followed it. And that led me to this very dangerous point of, not being able to see straight, not being able to see clearly myself, other people. I was constantly comparing myself to other people, and I thought, you know what, my body is just so ugly and so fat. When in reality, I was, you know, serving myself, I was too skinny, but I couldn't see that straight, mm-hmm. like I said, because I was believing his lies. And there was no point, again, like no light bulb moment when I decided, hey, I'm going to stop believing these, these lies and start believing the truth. It was, again, very gradual and subtle. And one thing that looking back, I can see it helped. Um, At the time, I I hated doing it. But my counselor, one of my counselors basically told me, like, you need to write down these lies that you objectively know. And this is at the point a lot of this was happening while I was physically recovered. She said, you need to write down the lies that you know are objectively, not what you feel, but that are objectively true, things that your doctors and your parents in the Bible are telling you. And you need to write those truths down along with all the the lies you're believing that, that you know aren't true. And that was really tedious for me. I'm not going to lie. It was, I hated doing it. I didn't see the point in doing it because in the moment, I didn't feel like my heart was changing or my mind was changing. And so I did that on and off for a while. Um, I kept a binder of all these like different things I journaled and like handouts that she gave me and different things and kind of combined all of this stuff that uh, we worked on together in a single binder. And um, I just wrote down lies and wrote down truths. And looking back, I can see that it helped in the moment. I didn't think it was helping. But I think that helped me objectively eventually see some of the truths that I had needed to see all along and had finally just sat down to write down and focus on. Yeah. Um, if so, that makes sense, that was crucial. Yeah. So I can imagine that probably one of the scariest junctures of your journey is trying to reconcile the fact that food is actually a good thing and food is necessary to life. And not only that, but we know that God gives food as a gift. And, you know, it's not just, it's not one of those ancillary things that you can take it or leave it. It's something that actually is is necessary. And so for you to have 
you know, probably for you, what was initially a hate-hate relationship with food. Um, you know, people will say, oh, I have a love-hate relationship with food, but it could be hate-hate. Um, Another point that you make in the book that I think is so helpful, and I want you to uh, speak to this a little bit, is uh, you alluded to it with body image, saying it it really is one of the hardest things about having an eating disorder. And uh, you kind of alluded to that while you may never feel good about your body, you can feel safe in it. So talk a little bit about how you started reconciling yourself to the necessity of food, the gift of food, the goodness of food, or where are you on that journey? Yeah, um, food definitely had an unhealthy relationship with it, um, as all anorexics do, because we have so many food, like food rules, like made up food rules that honestly are, come from Satan, um, and he places all these boundaries um, and all these, you know, rules on us that we think we have to follow. I thought I had to follow things like cheese is bad. Like, no, it's not. It it has calcium and protein and all these things that our bodies need. That's just one example. But for a while, I had really a really unhealthy relationship with food. And it finally, it wasn't any healthier when I was physically recovering. I was still very anti a lot of foods. But after I was physically recovered and when I started working more on my emotional and mental and spiritual recovery, I, my perspective of food gradually started to change. And if you, you know, you looked at the, the big picture of where I was, like, you know, when I was 16 and where I'm eating, what I'm eating now, um, it's so different. I let myself now eat so many things that I wanted to have let myself eat um, when I was like 16. And I think just moderation is kind of essential to how we eat and even how we exercise. Um, my counselor, a different counselor taught me just how much moderation can change the way we eat. And it's not eating, you know, we don't have to eat junk food all the time, but it's, it's crucial to allow ourselves to enjoy food. We do need it to live um, and enjoy treats. Like I wasn't able to do that years ago and now I can just enjoy treats. Um, Not meaning I have to, you know, eat one every day or at every meal or anything, but enjoying food as long as we eat it in moderation and enjoy food, enjoy treats in moderation. Mm -hmm. um, That was a crucial point for me. And now I can thankfully enjoy desserts and enjoy cheese and things that I couldn't before. Yeah. It's so, um, it's interesting how, you know, we're talking about your story, which specifically involves anorexia, but any kind of eating disorder, there are multiple manifestations of an eating disorder, including uh, any kind of food fixation, really. And we've talked about that before on the show. And for some people, it's, uh, you know, constantly wanting to eat and overeating and then feeling the guilt around that and planning out, well, what does it look like for me to think about not eating? Or or, you know, there might be other manifestations of trying to control food intake and, and whatnot. And I think it's so helpful what you're saying to talk about 
like, yeah, it's a, you know, you don't just tell yourself, you know what I need to do, I guess, because I have anorexia, I need to just start eating more. And I I really appreciate what you said about the role of counseling in your story, and the role of community and getting support and recognizing that, you know, again, bringing Satan into this, anytime we expose Satan's lies, it renders them powerless. And so uh, that's what we constantly have to be doing, regardless of the struggle we're in. And not, you know, not powerless in the sense of, you know, just speak it and all of a sudden, you know, Satan's not going to bug you. But um, but really to, to to have that in your as your first step in your arsenal. So, Grace, just in the minute here that we have left, our time always goes so fast. What would be your encouragement to someone who is like, maybe they're not sure, maybe they're like, well, you know, they've been kind of uh, pushing aside maybe thoughts around uh, some kind of food fixation or possibly they're toying with the idea of like, is this something I really struggle with? They don't know where to go from here. They don't probably like you did, didn't want to talk about it. What would be your first step recommendation for them? Uh, definitely, even if it's not, you know, officially diagnosed, if you have any kind of unhealthy view of yourself, your body, food, exercise, um, your weight, different things like that, pay attention to how you're viewing yourself and uh, those different key things like exercise and food and bring them up to someone. I definitely, like you said, Christian counseling was crucial in my recovery. Um, So even when it doesn't feel like it's helping, I would definitely recommend seeing a Christian counselor in getting their their biblical advice and their uh, what they learned over the years and just someone experienced in in that area, um, even if you don't know for sure that you have an eating disorder. Yeah, for sure. Well, excellent. Um, folks, I want to remind you again, This uh, the book is Real Recovery, What Eating Disorder Recovery Actually Looks Like. And we want to actually make Grace's book available to you. And this could be for you. It could be something you read and you pass along to a friend. It could be something that you read with a friend. If you go to boundless.org, search for 758, that's this week's episode, and you will see the book cover there. Just click on it for a gift of any amount to Boundless. You know, we do this often with our books and our resources. We'd love to get a copy of Grace's book into your hands. So go to Boundless.org, search for 758, click on the book, and uh, any gift to Boundless, whatever you can afford, we're going to send Grace's book as our thank you to you. So um, Grace, thank you so much for being part of this conversation. Very, very helpful. Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Well, the other thing we want to make you aware of is that we have a team here at Focus on the Family and Boundless of licensed professional counselors who can start you on this journey toward healing. And again, as Grace mentioned, this is physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing. We want you to be able to begin that journey in a great and and supported way. If you go to focusonthefamily.com slash get help, you will see there the opportunity to email us, to look for advice and resources, and also to connect directly with one of our counselors for a complimentary consultation where you can kind of talk through uh, your issue. Maybe this, it might be this exact thing that you're saying, I might need to get some help here. Uh, You can ask a counselor there to give you a call back. There's a phone number there as well. Someone will call you and uh, listen to you and give you some 
encouragement, pray with you, and then even recommend a counselor in your local area for continued care. So make sure that you definitely do that. Uh, you can go to focusonthefamily.com slash get help, or just call us directly at 1-800-THE-LETTER-A and the word family. We are ready to answer this week's inbox question, and we have invited Counselor Jenny Coffey back. Hey, Jenny. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hello. Hello. All right. This one has a little bit of a story to it, and so we're going to jump in so that I can let our listener tell it in her own words. She says, I have been friends for several years with a woman I'll call Sally. We both attended the same church and went to a lot of girls' events. In our late 20s, she often complained about being single or not being able to find the right man to marry. She became very negative about this and unbearable to be around. A few years later, I met my now husband and got engaged. The last time I spent time with Sally and some other friends, she again complained about being single, and I remember telling her, it can be really hard. I remember what it was like being single. Well, her response was a sharp, no, you don't. When you were single, everyone was single. Since then, we've been distant, and I've been polite to her in passing, but that's been about it. This past year, she got married, but I was not invited to the wedding. Then this past week, one of my friends, who's also friends with her, texted me and asked if I wanted to get together with Sally. This friend then told me Sally was asking about me and wondering why I haven't reached out to her. I was really surprised to hear this because Sally hasn't been in touch with me at all and didn't indicate that she wanted to see me. Should I reach out or just let things be? Mm, Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I'm hearing with that is Sally sounds like is just craving validation in those areas, right? It can be kind of hard to see through the exterior reaction, which would be probably snarky comments or those types of things. But Mm -hmm. what I hear in that is just a, a sadness, Mm-hmm. given the situation in the past, right? Yeah. Um, it's really interesting because to kind of bring me into it, I had a s- very similar situation happen yesterday where somebody that I've known in my past um, through the military now lives up here. Mm. Uh, they go to our church. Um, we were never really friends. Our husbands worked together. And she wrote me on Facebook and basically like called me out on how she felt I have been ignoring her and not acknowledging her. And mm. I, it blew me away because Mm. I was like, I didn't know we were like, you hadn't reached out either. I didn't. (laughs) I I was totally surprised. Mm -hmm. So the thing that's obviously different with this is that they had relationship previously, um, deep relationship. But um, I think it can be really hard when there's one of the friends who reaches out first 
and is presuming as though all the responsibility was on the other. Mm-hmm. So why haven't you reached out? Why haven't you done those things? And it's kind of like the door swings both ways. Mm-hmm. So what I would say, and it, it's definitely not black and white. This is a difficult one. Um, but what I would say is this, is that I think we have to be somewhat guarded and careful mm-hmm. around the Sally's of the world in the way of making sure that we're not giving, giving, giving in a way that becomes toxic or unhealthy, um, but also living in integrity as God would want us to live. Mm -hmm. And so that's really how I tried to respond to this person yesterday was this way of, I can acknowledge that there's probably insecurities in her um, and that there might've been behavior I did that reiterated those insecurities, Mm -hmm. but also realized for my part of like, what can I do different of that was never the heart of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And both of those things can exist at the same time. Mm -hmm. She can feel that way and it could be absolutely not my, my intention at all. And both of those things can be held and given space for. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also in that it was like, okay, so how do I want to proceed from here? Mm -hmm. In my opinion, it would depend on whether or not she's kind of wanted to rekindle that relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, If this is something that she's felt like she's grieved or lost or, you know, something that wants, she wants to rekindle for the purpose of having a deep friendship again. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also okay to say, you know, for a season we were this and now we're this and not have to make it what it used to be, Mm -hmm. um, but still hold space for, maybe some of the feelings that Sally has of feeling either ignored or not acknowledged without the listener going immediately into defensive mode. Cause that's mm-hmm. how we tend to be like, well, you haven't reached out to either. And yeah. it's like, well, that's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah. Um, but it's really up to her as far as what level of relationship she wants at this point. Yeah. And it seems to me too that, you know, cause I can see like on the surface, it looks like, yeah, you know, this is a two way street, but also, like you said, some time has passed. And honestly, I feel like the listener has to decide, is she still hurt by that comment right. that Sally made? Because again, she can't just go into, um, kind of a martyr ro- role of like if if she is like well yeah I want to rekindle this but I need to address that then mm-hmm. she has to address it because you can't just pick up where you left off and be like right passive aggressive from the get-go you yes. know of like hey let's continue this passive aggressive plan of, of getting together I also think it affects I, I think the friend is saying Sally wants to hang out with her just her I mean I feel like for me I would tread into something like that maybe with a a group of older friends or something and be like hey but keeping it cash but sometimes you've moved on and you just you can't reintroduce all these people Mm -hmm. into your life again and Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I totally like what you say Jenny about she just has to see where she is in life right Mm -hmm. now and what she's up for and if she wants to and doesn't mean any hard feelings towards Sally but it's just kind of like yeah you know we're kind of in different spots right now and it might not be a season where I can really enter into that again so yeah I appreciate you saying that I love how you said too actually brought up the idea of the hurtful comment because um you know I definitely hear it but I hadn't really linked that the idea that the comment back to her about um you don't know what it's like is very invalidating to her experience because just because she's married now Right. Doesn't negate every, all the pain and all the hurt that she felt previously, potentially from those single years. It's not like being single is terrible, but if she felt this loneliness or this yeah. sadness around that. Right. Um, so that's something to just kind of be aware of that, that it was met with that comment mm-hmm. and to go into it saying, you know, what level of invalidation do I really want in a friendship if Sally's not going to acknowledge that? 
Yeah, exactly. And it's not like, you know, hey, let's act like nothing happened. And it's just open season on negative comments. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, you have to be you have to take ownership of what you've said and how that's going to present moving forward. Mm So, okay, well, good thoughts. Thanks so much. Um, Folks, we are at the end of our show. And so if you have a minute, I always love encouraging you if you're willing to to hop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review of the Boundless Show. Because again, the more reviews that we rack up, and the more people see that people are enjoying the show, they might be willing to give it a listen. And of course, if you can uh, share maybe an episode that has been meaningful for you on your social, tell your friends, uh, that's just a great way to grow the Boundless family. So as you are doing that, I will let you know that I will see you around next week. This is Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. Do you ever wonder what it was like to meet Jesus face to face? The miracles, the teachings, the long-awaited Messiah in the flesh. It's all in a new novel by Focus on the Family called The Chosen, I Have Called You by Name, based on the hit streaming series. Immerse yourself in first century Galilee. Experience the Savior through the eyes of his followers. You'll want to dive deeper into scripture with every page turn. Learn more about The Chosen novel at focusonthefamily.com slash chosen. That's focusonthefamily.com slash chosen.